Yes. Tell you guys something? Sure. I think it's wonderful. Okay, back in the early 1900s when I was in school, um, we had religious re re release time weekly. Religious what? Our church. Somebody might have had it a little bit later. Well, anyway, there is an organization called Lifeway. I saw this on TBN. They had a big deal about it. Anyway, they have the religious release program in 12 states serving over 300 elementary schools. And they're trying to expand. And I think that is the most wonderful thing. They have been able to document that the behavior in school is better and the grades are improving. Who, what, what organization is this? Lifeway. Lifeway, okay. That is wonderful. And Lord, we pray you're blessed in endeavors like that. And that, uh, Lord, every little thing that you would add to make life better in this world, Lord, we pray for those blessings as well, particularly in education, which is so important. We lift this up in Jesus' name as well. Um, I'm going to try to close out today, although I know I'm not going to do that, but I will declare victory and pick it up at a later day. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to try to go through the historical framework here a little bit, but I've started here on this slide to kind of summarize what we've said so far. You know, essentially, when we look at Daniel, he emphasizes an eternal righteousness, an eternal life, an eternal kingdom. And these really are the three principles that I argue that we need to keep in mind as Christians here because they bound our Christian life. And that as we talked last week, the closer that little shaded area being those Christian principles as outlined in the Bible, the closer our lives conform to that, and the less difference between the world, the less suffering we have. The more difference between us and the world, the greater our suffering. Um, in, in summer here, before I get into this, I want to lay out some parameters uh, on the board here, perhaps, for maybe the best way to do this. <coughs> And one of those being, you know, when we talk about this triangle, I know, I know I'm triangulophobic, that's okay, or I'm not non-triangulophobic, so anyway, you have the triangle, no condition of, of, of what are the conditions of the covenant, you have faith as a condition or obedience of the covenant. It, it, this is maintained on this axis right here, this is all, uh, this is all eternal, Unconditional, absolute, and this on the other extreme is wrong. We live in time. They're, they're th we live in time. Right? These things are bound together whether they're, they're all in one and the same. But over here, you have what, I would, in my mind, in reading the Puritans, I'm trying to summarize. You have grace acting through, which is a gift from God, which transforms our lives, both to renew us in the image of Christ, but also to improve us in sanctification. And where we'll get into today is we're talking about a worldview here. One worldview is that God is sovereign, we've fallen in sin, we're only maintained in any positive value whatsoever by a state of grace. And this is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit within us, okay? That's the Father in Christ, all right? So you have the you have the triune God working together here. But what, what the secular world wants to replace this with, and what 
unfortunately, as a lot of uh, Catholic uh, uh, principles from the Jesuits and Dominions, 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 I want to replace this with the, back to law. The power of nature. Okay, this is really driven by, oh, we're just, that's our nature, okay, that, that, we, that we're free. So the other extreme condition is maybe, maybe some of the more religious views see an eternal God, maybe that's shared in common with what we have, okay, yeah, but the problem is they see man not as fallen in sin, but naturally born in a state of freedom, being able to choose what he wants, being able to uh, make, do right, having a righteousness from God, and again, taking this further, they see no real difference here, and actually, if you follow it to the logical conclusion, they see this natural law as the same thing that God is governed by. That basically, there is a law of nature, there is a law of reason, and that that rules God just like it rules us, okay, and that, that, that can explain all things, okay? So that's the other worldview that we're free, we're not falling in a state of sin. Now, I'm taking it to an extreme, but not really by that much. And so the fundamental question is, have we fallen by Adam? And that's the fundamental question we get into this. And that question of the state of man, whether man is free and capable on his own, uh, uh, and, and, and ability to have that moral righteousness within himself naturally, okay, without any implantation by God's grace, that's the question we're struggling with here. And, and so we'll get into that, and you'll see this develop as we go on. So I just want to start with that. If you look at this list of books, and they're on the table in front of us, maybe one wants to look at them, they may. But, but I'll just briefly go through them. Uh, the one, if I had to recommend one book here of, of all of these that really gets to the heart of, of the issue, it's this one by uh, Pierre Rive. Uh, excuse me. And he really, I think, what in my mind, deals best with the classical Calvinistic view, uh, which is that, you know, very much that we're following his sin, of course, and that, uh, you know, that we need to pay serious attention to Romans 13, and that God is in control, and, and if we'd have evil rulers, they're evil rulers because they're, they're, God is working his history through them to bring about purposes. So that's it's God's wrath against us in a way, okay? And that to disobey them would be to disobey God in essence. So this is what I'll call the classical reform position. Sometimes it, it, I'm not going to say it, 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 there aren't some issues with it, but nonetheless, it, it, he most clearly conveys it, and I'll get into that. I'll say the other extreme... It doesn't go anywhere near to this. I'm staying within classical Christian views here. It has been the Kayak. That was written by pseudonym authors, you know, that essentially Brutus, as he calls himself, okay, and a defense of liberty against tyrants, okay. And it was written primarily after the French Revolution as a way to try to defend maybe taking a more open view. Maybe there are some points where we should, where it's okay to resist the king and not to obey whatever the case may be. Now, now Beret and Calvin would clearly say that we never obey commands that are unlawful. But the issue is, do you, do you submit to the king? Do you honor the king? Okay? This is where we kind of draw the line. This is where this guy maybe goes a little bit too far in the other direction. But these are the two extremes. If you want to get the, the founding views within Christian thought, they're here, okay? 
Now, if you want to, when I say, well, I say they say bound to use, well, then Christian reform thought, okay? They're bounded by these two books, all right? There, if you want to get a good history of the subject, there's a guy, there is a, there is a, didn't bring it. Yes, I did. There's a good book by Quentin Skinner, Foundations of Modern Political Thought. And I'm using this largely as sort of a framework for going through this, but if you want to get a history of this topic, when it is okay to resist or not to resist, all the way from the Middle Ages through the, 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 to Locke, this is a very good book. It'll give you an intellectual framework to understand that and get more. So, so my, my point here today is I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with an overview. There are lots of good books. Go read them. Uh, come to grips with them. If you want to get more in this line, you know, and follow this, there is a view that really should, can can Christian nation be a Christian nation? Yeah, I think it can. So that there is some some issue here, but nonetheless, there's a good book here that defends that it's okay to have a Christian nation. It's okay to have to view that. There's the other extreme that uh, by Van Drunen, uh, who sort of sees uh, sort of is he he isn't over here. He's in a reform camp, but but he he has some very good points, and his basic fundamental point is that the government is ruled by the law of nature, and we're ruled by the law of God in Christ. So that's the fundamental distinction. And, and, he, and he goes through and biblically defends that distinction in, in a very good and able way. And it's a very good, it's a very good informative help in working our way through this problem. So, so, uh, so, so, so that's a very good book to get there. We have a couple of books Van in another book, and so another book on the kingdom here. It's going to, okay. You have some books by uh, Goodman, Knox, and Panay. These were Mary in Exiles. I'll get into what I mean by that. And they kind of, they kind of start deviating somewhat from Calvin, but nonetheless, they, 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 they're, they're not as, as extreme as this yet, but they're sort of heading in that direction, sort of getting into the issue. You have another good, some other good books that are here. Another book I highly recommend if you want, a, if you want an overall subject is, is Continuing Public Square. If you want a more philosophical framework for this, John Knox, of course, is good. And then there are tons of other books on scripture and politics. So the point I'm getting at is we can't possibly cover all those books today. But what I want to focus on today is the history of this idea and this development, more so than giving you the answer, okay, because... There's some, de there's some debate among Christians as to what the answer is. I lean more towards uh, this view, okay, but I see some points and maybe take some differences here uh, with some of these others. As good. But I'm, I, I would have to say that this is principally my view, that, that, that Christ promised that there'd be suffering on this earth and that it's sort, it's sort of a militant view in a way. Right? It sort of really focuses on the invisible church rather than the, than the visible church. And the fundamental issue is we're here. Christ is bringing about his, it's a very optimistic view of Christ bringing about his kingdom. And we're involved in that. And uh, we may very well suffer as a result. You know, Christ promised that we'd suffer, okay? And that we need to recognize that. And, and when you look through the history of time, what, what, what led to Rome being overtaken by Christianity in 313? What led to the Protestant Reformation in 15? I'll just pick 1560 as the most fruitful element of it. Uh, what led to those things was really when people were willing to die and suffer for Jesus Christ on the cross. That, that yes, there wasn't a justice. Yes, there is this. But what, who are we fundamentally, and what is our relationship to that? 
And when is it not okay to not obey? Okay? Notice the word disobey here. I think that's a very important thing here. We're always obeying. You know, so our, we frame the question of disobedience in terms of obedience. The question isn't whether we're, whether it's, when do we disobedient. The question is when and how to obey. Okay, that's really the issue I'm trying to get here. Okay, so much for my position on this. Let's move, let's sort of go back in history some and sort of get a, a framework here. Uh, let's sort of step back before the Reformation and go into the medieval time period and, and this is a gross simplification. I'm not doing justice to either view. But on one extreme, there is a view called Via Antiqua, which is the, the original or the old way. And there is the Via Moderna, which was developed by Occam, etc. These different strategies somewhat line up with the idea of nominalism and universals. I don't have time to get into that today. But... Uh, Occam challenged a lot of things, you know, whether, 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 whether ideas are real or not, okay? Uh, he challenged that, and, and well, Plato, and I, I, it's beyond the scope of trying to get into the discussion today. I won't get into the philosophical underpinnings of these two ideas. I'll just try to focus on the practical implications as far as our topic is concerned. The Via Antiqua is uh, largely the view of the Jesuits, the Dominions, the Catholics, and, and Aquinas argues that the king is above the people. So this kind of gives a situation, and, but, it, but it's very much along this line, that natural law, it sort of has these frameworks that, that it sort of gives a high view of natural law. And this was developed, at, well, let me, let me, give me I'll develop that as I go here. Occam on the other extreme, you have Occam and, and Jacques Alleman and Jean Mayer, argue that the law and the people are both above the king. So the question is, who is, who is, who is overhead here? Okay, the, it, it sort of bypasses the question of God because both of them generally agreed God was in, uh, overhead. So that wasn't the issue they were getting at here. But, but, but they certainly had different ways they brought that about and degrees to which they ultimately in practice viewed that. But nonetheless, the difference here is whether the king is above the law and the people or whether the, whether the law and the people are above the king. That's the fundamental issue. And these people saw the authority was only delegated communicatively to the king, that he only possesses as, as, as a delegate or as a communicative power from the people. The argument is that the people are accountable and have the right to self-defense, okay, uh, it, it, just as any person does. In other words, the people are treated as a moral being in a sense, but collectively, but the issue is how do they do that? As a nominalist, they sort of don't view the people as a people, they view it as their representatives, but I'm going to get lost in that topic. The sword of the people is the people's property. Even though the king wields a sword, the sword is the people's property in this view. Hence, dethronement is warranted in case of tyrannical rule over free people, but only, for the, only by the prince electors. I'm using the language of their day. These were the people who were in charge of, of what I'll call states or regions. Uh, they were the inferior magistrates over the people. Or in some cases, you would call them the three estates of a, of a nation, okay, in terms of the, the lords and, and the people, etc. Um, uh, they were, that, that again, and again, I'm getting lost in rabbit trails, but, but again, they weren't supporters of councils because if a council were, were nominated uh, from the people, maybe they would support it. Most of these council decisions in the Roman church 
Where did they get their power from? The Pope. Okay. They didn't get it for the people. The people didn't vote on these things. The Pope had that power. So they, they opposed that. So this is very anti-papal in its framework. And the bearers of the authority were accountable to people. So, you know, you kind of hard to argue with this. This is very much American in many ways. This is very much the, the foundations of modern democracy we get in this nominalism and this via Moderna approach and, and these views that are there. So that's the framework that, you know, there were two intellectual traditions, I'll say. One of them was that the king is sort of divine rights. He's there. He's above the people. Uh, the people gave him that power. And again, you can sort of see this here, is that, is it, but, but this raises a question. Let me ask the question on the via maternity. If the people are free, as proposed here, why would they give away their freedom? Okay. What's the logic of them giving away their freedom to somebody else? Well, anyway, the bottom line in this logic is the only logic of that is for oblique purposes. They see that as a moral good, etc., and they bestow this on a on a king. But that king is a toggle switch here. They recognize in that bestowal they keep give that king an absolute right. Okay, so that's sort of the idea here. So you have two extreme views. One of them is the king's above the people. And that's and, and, and in a way that's sort of the foundations of modern tyranny, okay? And the other extreme is the people are above the king. All right. Now I would argue that the Christian view is really somewhere between these, maybe more like the via Moderna, I would say, in many ways. But but none of these deal with God. The issue is when you bring God back into the equation, where does that where does that bring you out? Or is this just a question of natural law? Or is this a question of God's law? And how do those two fit together? Luther initially, okay, and this is sort of going through this historically. Initially, Luther allowed no appeal to the law of nature, insisting on complete submission uh, uh, to secular authorities without active resistance as commanded in the word. Okay, get that word not out of that sentence. Okay, so, so, so this was complete submission. Now, the word submission there is, 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 is important, all right? It doesn't mean you have to obey. He would, Luther would also say you don't obey commands that, that, are, that, that are against the word of God. He would also say that. But in other things, you're completely submit. You should, be, you should not resist secular authority. Calvin had a very similar view. Okay, He sort of saw two kingdoms, as spiritual and temporal, both act as eternal means of the temporal things, but the former having nothing to do with the body, and, and has nothing to do with the outward relationship of mankind, but is solely to do with the mind, okay? He insists thinking of both at the same time is impossible. So Calvin says, okay, when you try to put both of them on the same page, you just can't do it. He recognizes that. So I like thinking about the Trinity. The latter exists to foster and maintain the eternal worship of God. That's the spiritual or, or the churchly power. Our job is to maintain the eternal worship of God, to defend sound doctrine, and the condition of the church, to adapt our condition to human society, to form our manner to civil justice, to conciliate us to each other, to cherish common peace and tranquility. He insists, as pilgrims, Christians need such aid to, and take them away, and to take them away, and the aids from leaders, okay, and to take them away would be to rob them of his humanity. Calvin stresses submission of individuals to magistrates except when led by lesser or true magistrates or who resist with the authority of the people or unless it leads 
us to disobey God. Well, very much kind of like the, like the Via Moderna view here, very much in this influence, that we should obey. And now, now again, this is the same as the Via Moderna. The Via Moderna wasn't as reformed in its view here, so I don't want to conflate them, but there's an influence. They're basically saying Calvin was very much like Luther. Both of them would agree that, that inferior magistrates, as representative of the people, really could overthrow a king if necessary. But other than that, the, 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 the people should, be, should, should basically honor the king. They should submit. Okay? But however, they should not obey commands of violation of Scripture. Those are sort of a high-level views here. Okay, the later Dominicans and Jesuits, building on the Via Antiqua view, they attacked Lutheranism, and their attack was both on the theology and the politics of Lutheranism. I mean, they were really coming at it from both directions. They they wanted to, they were really trying to trying to uh, bring about this was after this sort of the Counter Reformation. They stressed the visible over the invisible church as the, as they kind of sort of consolidated their doctrine. The Protestant view is is the principal church in its existence. The kernel of it, the essence of the church, is the invisible church. That's the essence. There is a visible church, and, and it has a role. It's not to be ignored, not the point I'm trying to make. But the very essence of the church in the Protestant view is the invisible church, is the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is those that are elected and in, in, in communion with God. Okay? They stress the visible over the invisible. They stress, rather than Scripture being the guide, they stress the apostolic tradition being the guide. That there were people, and it's, this sort of gives a deference to authority and power, okay? Those who were bestowed on the power, they're following the natural law, they've got this apostolic tradition, they can move forward here, they don't need Scripture. They stress natural law implanted in man. So, so they're basically saying, okay, each man is implanted with, it, it's, it don't really get into the fall. Maybe there's some damage from the fall, but it's not very severe from, from, from the viewpoint we would see it. Rather than grace, the foundation of the moral life and society were from reason and logic. So, so basically, reason and logic were the things upon which a society is founded. It has nothing to do with God. God has nothing to do with it, an extreme view here. Hence, man did not need divine revelation to do right. In other words, we, in other words the argument is, what, you know, Bible's a nice, good thing and all that. Tells us about God. It's great. We worship it, et cetera, et cetera. But, but they, were, they, were basically, they were basically, they don't need divine revelation. The man's already got within himself the ability to make right or wrong decisions, okay? They even saw the right to own property from natural law. We would agree with that, wouldn't we not? I mean, you know, so, so there, are some simil, there are some threads here where, where they get mixed up here. In politics, the law of nature and not the law of God should rule. So again, they really stress the law of nature as being the foundational principle that makes us behave, that makes society behaves, that, that makes kings behave where they are, that, that, that essentially, taken to the extreme, the law of nature is what makes God behave. Okay, in other words, and I'm, I'm being majority there, but essentially the, the law of nature is so overarching that it is also the law of God that is for, the framework is there that God himself is bound by it. They saw man as having a free will, man having an indwelling conscience that, re that reflected the natural law. So again, this was a, very, you know, you hear on Fox News this natural law theology, and you know, this is kind of where it's coming from, okay? It's a very Catholic origin view here. There, there's truth in it. I'm not going to totally dismiss it. Don't get me wrong here. But I'm just trying to give you to where at a view that takes natural law to an extremely wrong perspective. The opposing idea that an ungodly prince could be disobeyed. They oppose the idea that an ungodly pr uh, prince could be disobeyed. In other words, you're to obey. You're to obey. Again, they, 
So would so would Luther. I mean, so would Calvin. Okay, all right, you know, in a sense, but they took it to do it very extreme, even if, even against the word of God, because the word of God wasn't superior to the law of nature. So they took it to the very extreme tyrannical view that under no condition should you disobey a prince, even if his commands are inconsistent with the word of God. All laws coming from the natural law must ultimately come from God, who is bound by the natural law, which is his very nature. Uh, powers transferred absolutely to the king. So whatever this pact of time took place, whatever this transfer took place, because these people were free, they realized that, that in order to order for a man to govern a free people, he had to be given absolute power. Okay, so that kind of, those ideas kind of go together here. The issue, if man be so free, this is a problem with this logic, if man be so free, how do you explain the development of political societies. Why would men give up? If they're so free and the natural laws within themselves, what need would they have of a, of, of, of a government? Uh, and so the bottom, and to answer that, they saw consent as a foundation. They came up with this theory that the people agreed to give this king supreme authority by their consent for oblique purposes. I mean, even, they weren't really, you know, what I mean by oblique purposes, they're like for the good of society, for the good of the natural law, for the things that reason would dictate, etc. But they realized that that was a necessity. So you have this Protestant view where God is in control to where if we suffer, it's at the hand of God and we're to obey the word of God in all conditions. That's our God. That's our rule. You have this other extreme where power is given to people, even if it's tyrannical, obey it in that extreme. They would say obey it, except when it violates the word of God, but he would, they would say, this other group of you would say, that under no conditions should you disobey a king. Okay, so that, those are kind of laying it out. Those are the two frameworks that we can kind of oversimplify, of course, but we can kind of look at to kind of guide us through this journey. Just a minute. Yes. Question. Uh, maybe two questions. Um, you said that the way you're summarizing their position is that they, uh, whoever they are in this uh, particular conversation, would say like that natural law or the law of nature does not have the same content as the moral law revealed in No, they, they would say it would have the same content, but, but they would say that, that the moral law would be a, and I don't want to use the word inferior, but a partial summary of the natural law. They agreed the natural law and the, and the, word, and, and the Ten Commandments were yeah. coincidental. Yeah. Uh, and, but that raises some problems. How do you get positive law? How do you get the command for Adam? To, but it has a lot of issues with it, okay? But um, anyway, go ahead with your question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, was, I just wanted to make sure I was understanding you. Um, the second thing was, um, it seems, the question that you're asking, why would uh, an absolutely free people give up their freedom to a civil ruler, basically, if they are... Let me, let me clarify that. When I say by as free as these people say, right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're, we, you can be free, okay, in my mind, but not have a free will. You know, the point, really get, what does it mean by the word free? Sure, okay. sure. I'm using free in a very narrow sense. Yeah, yeah I was trying right. to okay. in that right. sense. Okay, so, right. go ahead. Um, if that argument holds, would it be logical to say that you or it, maybe it's not your argument or it's theirs, but that civil magistrates or civil authority in general are a result of the fall? Oh, that's a good, good distinction. 
Uh, these guys would say that civil magistrates are a result of the fall and of God's ordination. These people, the Jesuits, the Dominicans would say, civil magistrates, because these people were free, you know, there must have been some other reason. There are these oblique reasons, okay, for oblique reasons, for the good of society, for the, for the orderly transition of things, for conduct of civil affairs, for the property ownership, da-da-da-da, you know, for, for natural law reasons, okay. Uh, natural law, but oblique, they weren't primary, yeah, I, I'm using the word oblique in, in a broad sense here, but as a broader umbrella, sort of like, like tangential ideas that came out of that, but for reasons that, that were consistent with nature and logic, okay, but were not, we're not totally bound by it, it maybe in a sense. Maybe I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure I'm being very articulate or, or able to be very articulate here. So. No, that's fine. I mean, I understand what you're saying. It's just a, it's a curious thing to think about because you know, it sounds uh, far out there, but, um, you know, if civil magistrates are a result of the fall, then that really is going to flavor the yes. way that we view them. Yes. But if they're, if headship in a general sense is natural, and I tend to think it is, yeah. uh, rather than as a result of the fall, mm -hmm. if headship is natural and that would work itself out into not just the family but the state as well, then that's also going to yeah. play with the way we view the magistrates. Give an important qualification here. These are two extremes. Mm -hmm. right. There is truth yeah. in both of these frameworks. Okay. I'm just trying to delineate two extremes here. Okay, I, I agree with you. Okay, in many of the things you say there, but but I'm, I'm asking you to to understand that when we use a lot of these, I just want us to. I just want to. I just want to provide a, what I'll call a, an inoculation against the natural law thought process. Not that, not that I don't go there myself lots of times, okay? But I'm just trying to say its foundations are intellectually in the Jesuit, Dominican, anti-counter-revolution, counter-reformation viewpoint, okay? No, I'm not trying to critique okay. you. I was just right. kind of but, 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 sharing a bubble with but, people. But on the other side, all these guys say, you know, yes, they're government. We, we free, the people freely, the, the argument, did the people... Choose David, yes, biblically. Yeah, there's a freedom. There's a choice in an election, okay? But the question is, were those sinful people who were making those choices or those people who don't need, I mean, who are really doing it for the very good? They're, they're altruistically doing it for the better good of society and mankind, okay? But that, that's really the distinction here that I'm trying to make. I mean, the word free is a very dangerous word. There's free will in the sense, you know, that yes, God, you know, can we, I don't want to get lost in that topic. But, but I'm, trying to, I'm trying to distinguish free in two senses here. Free but sinful. Okay. Fallen man. Versus free, yes, sinful, but eh, that's just no big deal. Go to priests, you know, do a couple of, Hail Marys, you're okay. I mean, no big deal here. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm being pejoratively exaggerating. I'm, no, I guess. I, I'm not yeah. being fair. Yeah. I've got a question. Do, or do both camps go back on this issue <coughs> biblically to looking when Israel chose the oh, yeah. king? So both camps do that. Yeah. All 
Right. Yes. That's the center by which. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Don't get me wrong. In this, I don't want to wrench them from their context. Right, but, but, Both of them had a context of the okay, Bible. But, Go ahead. But, but then you get back to the question that you just proposed. The reform view would say that the choice of a king was sinful. It was rejection of God. Well, Israel. Not necessarily. Well, yeah. Okay. Because they looked at what was going on around them. They looked yeah. at the other nations and yeah. they chose yeah. to parody yeah. them. Yeah. That's right. kind of how it's portrayed in the Bible. But, right. but, it, but ultimately, it was something God ordained. Yeah. God allowed. 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 Thank you. Well, okay. okay. Well, I would say everything He ordains, He allowed. But anyway, but, go ahead. Okay. But, well, there is a distinction. There. Okay. All right. He chose to let them be foolish right. for that purpose right. and process. Right. But, right. So, but there. But. But that then, how you view that point flavors the two sides, though. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, yeah, I agree with you, but let me add a third side. Here. All right, that's why I'm, okay. Right. The third side is whether you're a Christian or not. Okay. And to what degree Christ enters in. Because what I said before, I've laid out these two frameworks independent of how God fits into right. this. Okay. Once you start fitting God into this, it shifts the dynamics. Okay. I, I agree, right. but that's why I asked the question. Originally, both looked at that, and that yeah. was the. Yeah. But somewhere along that pathway, natural law became preeminent in the more so in the thinking as it evolved into nation states and king, how kings came into play in Germany yeah, yeah, and yeah. Europe and all the other areas. So. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, okay. yes. Yeah. Right, right. I'm, I'm trying to follow their chronology of right. how it started and right. grew. Let me let me just say that I'm conflating two different periods in time, which is always dangerous. There was the true medieval distinction between nominalism and realism. Okay, which I'm not going to try to define yeah. those terms. Okay, they're more or less the via moderna and the via antiqua views. Okay, and 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 those were. Both of those, there was, they believed in God. I mean, you know, if I'm not, they were, they were basically, there were, there were very few true atheists in that age. Okay, they believed in God, largely in, in, in this society. So that was a biblical society within the framework. Okay, now whereas the Jesuits largely framed their arguments to counter Luther, and and they argued Luther was wrong both theologically and politically. Okay, and, and that was their fundamental point they were trying to make here. Go ahead. One of the ways that I find it helpful to, to remember the distinction between the Via Antiqua and the Via Moderna is Via Antiqua is mediated. Everything man has is mediated through nature, through okay. institution. So the Roman Catholic Church, the sacraments are mediated. Like, you have to go to the church in order to receive the efficacy of the sacrament. Same way in the political you know, system, Authority is mediated. God does. God never acts immediately upon people. The Via Moderna opened up the immediate work of God upon people, and that's really where we are today. Lee, you articulated the reform view, which is an immediate view. That God works through people immediately, and people can then you know work up to authority and things like that. But the Roman Catholic view is, no, God always ever works immediately. He always has an intermediate between himself and people, and you can't overthrow that. So in this political realm, a king is mediated authority to people. Therefore, he is absolutely that authority because he is the representation of, that author of God's authority on earth. 
and that can go to no other person. Right. So yeah, you get into, we are, we're so used to everything <coughs> being immediate. Like we're even so immediate in our thinking that we think we don't even have to have church. Mm -hmm. right, people think that they can have just as much church and the golf course as they can have gathering at the state. Right, that's how far away from the Via Antigua that we are in our thinking. It's, it's like a whole other world. Yeah. I think it, you, I, mean, I don't know how accurate this is because I haven't studied those, those two fields of, of thought or whatever, but it seems to me that uh, the Via Antigua seems to see, like the old view, would argue that the Bible is not a manual for politics. Yes. It, 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 it would be part of their view. Right. And that they, they lean much more heavily on that. Whereas the other uh, would take more of a, a, I don't mean in a pejorative sense, but a more biblicist view. That yeah. The Bible has more to say about these things than maybe has been previously thought. Yeah. And therefore it's called modern because it's different. But I mean, that, that's a question in general because, you know, you bring up this Samuel and David discussion, all that people demanding a king like the nations, even though we read, I think it's in Deuteronomy, that the Lord had promised him a king anyway. It just wasn't time for it. Right. Uh, so is the king the issue, or is it the patience of the people? Right. That's, yep. that's the thing. Um, and that, again, it goes back to, to Genesis, to creation, and all that stuff. What, what was God's intent in this? I apologize. I'm trying to go through... I'm not doing a very good job at that. I'm trying to argue that. <laughs> I'm trying to communicate the evolution of thought here. Yeah. In the Middle Ages, there was a fairly... Uh, God was there. Okay, God forbid to take God out of that equation. I'm not trying to take God out of that equation. It was really more Christian. Okay, read Thomas Aquinas. A lot of good Christian ideas there. You, I might, you, can't, you can't... It wasn't as extremely driven as the later Catholicism was. Okay, It was very biblical in its foundation, yet... At the fundamental heart of it was a stress on the natural law, a stress on, on, on this idea of this mediated, that's a good, good way of putting it, thank you, Andrew, the mediated power of the king. You have to give it to him absolutely. Okay, that's his power. Okay. Uh, now, and what I'm trying to get to is that then along comes the Reformation. And then you, and maybe I jumped into this too soon, you have Luther, okay, and Calvin, and I just kind of went through there, but let's go through Calvin to kind of get, he saw the two kingdoms, I've done that already, okay, you know, that we're pilgrims in this world. He stresses submissions of individuals to magistrates except when led by a lesser true magistrate. So Calvin would allow a re, a rebellion, and later on he warmed up, his initial writings were not so open to it, but over time he warmed up to the idea of allowing lesser magistrates to overthrow a higher magistrate. That wasn't something he initially was terribly fond of, but he warmed up to that idea, and you can find it in his writings. So, and, and that was sort of the summary of, of the issue is that when do we obey? Well, what is Romans 13? Obey higher authorities, okay? And, and again, you need to understand that uh, the context here, that we're, we're there, okay? So I, won't, I don't have time to get into that concept. I better move on. Then you, I'm just trying to say that as a counter-reformation against this, and, and again, both Calvin and Luther, maybe, the, maybe you could put the visible and invisible, but certainly in Calvin's view, the vis invisible church was the very heart through the election, through the people of God. The, that's the core of the church, the very kernel of what the church is. 
is the invisible church. The visible church is there. We, I don't want to dismiss it or, or marginalize it in any way. Very important in reality. But the essence of it is who are we as a people of a God? We are those people chosen by God who God has worked in the heart to transform in the image of Christ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's the framework here. Uh, what now, the Dominicans were fighting that. They're saying, oh, no, uh, you know, the word of God's good. We're not going to oppose that, but a tradition is really needed. Man needs this, use, uh, use uh, Andrew's word, a mediated authority. These authority figures of people here, okay, to, to bring about uh, this, this power of Scripture. So they were opposing the very foundations of the Reformation. They stress nature rather than grace. And, and again, that's what I remember. I tried to frame this argument, and we see the Holy Spirit through grace both transforming us into the image of God and sanctifying us, okay, to make us holy in, 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 in that sense, from faith and obedience. That, that all comes from grace, but grace being a gift of God transforming our lives, not something that, some, not some kind of little animal that has its own mind and will within us to make us do things, okay, and that's it. Whereas they see this, the Jesuits see this, nature is over here doing this, okay? That nature is the power, and nature is consistent with That's the point I'm trying to make. They saw man as having a free will, man a dwelling, with a dwelling conscious. They opposed the idea that ungodly prints could be disobeyed. All laws come from the natural law, must ultimately come from God. So, so again, they're, they're, they, they're, not trying, they're not drawing a distinction here between the moral law and all of that. They say, oh, those are types of the natural law. I mean, they, they, they would argue they're not inconsistent. Okay, but they're, they're not being intellectually honest fully in, in the viewpoint there. Who is bound? Uh, they really don't have much of a clear view of what I'll call the positive law. Uh, a positive law, the best example is when Adam, God told Adam to not eat of that fruit. Well, that's a positive law. Adam couldn't deduce that from the law of nature. Okay. Uh, they, they, okay, so, so anyway, that's the issue. I've been through all this. I could get lost in that, and that'd be a whole lesson of itself. Let me try to move on here in the time I got left, and I'm not going to be very successful. English Reformation. Okay. Anglican Church, Henry, Henry VIII, over the issue of divorce, ultimately broke from the Catholic Church in England. Okay. Uh, you have, uh, in 1534, the Act of Supremacy, which established that formally. You then have some, what I'll call some earlier reformers, Tyndall, Barnes, etc., who in the 1520s, 25, somewhere in that time frame, were very influential. And again, what they stressed, both Barnes and, and Tyndall, Stress. He translates ecclesia as the as the congregation of the faithful. He, when 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 you read Tyndall's translation, he doesn't use the word church. He uses the congregation, and you almost need to read into that the congregation of the faithful. That's what he means: the elect, the people of God, the congregation that comes to worship God. And and yes, the invisible church is there in 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 the in the kernel and the husk perspective of the idea, but it's principally that true worship of God that's the heart of it. The English resistance view saw themselves as part of God's covenant of promise and fulfillment with England as a new, God's new Israel. Okay, I'm, I'm taking that from a guy named Dan who wrote a book on the, on the Marian exiles. Tyndall, in his obedience to the Christian man in 1528, stressed the duty to obey rulers in all things as unto God, but also contends that magistrates must not submit to papal authority. So he's made, the Tyndall's big issue was, whoa, there's only one king in the land. The Pope can't be king. The Pope has no power over the king. 
So, so you don't need to obey these pope, pap, papal laws, okay, because they're not the law of the land. It's really where he was coming from. They're not, he's not, the Pope's not the magistrate, okay? You don't have to submit to that. That's the distinction he was making. So, so he adds an important nuance here to the argument of who really, this really question is who really is the king? Who's really in charge? The kingdom must have one king and one law in the land. Henry VIII agreed. He loved it. Thought it was great. This is a great guy until he read more about the Bible and all that. And it kind of changes his view. He argues that the evil rulers were a just punishment imposed by God. That's temple. Therefore, it, to resist them uh, was to seek to evade God's just punishment uh, uh, leading to an even greater state of God's wrath. That's where Tyndall's coming from. Very much along the Calvinistic, Lutheran, original, foundational view. Very much that we get over here. Very much along this view. It came up in the Vray, come, comes up later. All right. Um, Barnes has very much the same view, and, and I won't read it for lack of time here, but essentially he says that he, he only sees, he sees the church as having uh, really no judicial authority at all in that sense that, that, that states have. So, so he sees them as really separate, different entities in, in, very much in there. Yet he equally wrote that men's constitution, which are not grounded in Scripture, bind not the conscience of man. Okay, whoa, okay, here we go. But isn't that really the same thing as saying, same thing Calvin's saying, okay, that, that we obey God rather than man? All right, so, but, but, but it's putting it more in terms of a language. They're beginning to address the issues of, okay, what does that principle mean to obey God rather than man? And he takes it to the point of men's constitutions, which are not granted in Scripture, bind not the conscious man. Well, we could take that and take it to such an extreme that we'd drive it crazy. And well, actually, he was that that idea, the idea was a little needs to be qualified a little bit more. It ultimately led to his execution and his recantation. He basically said that uh, you know that uh, the law. Uh, he confessed that law and ordinances made by Christian rulers, Christian rulers, ought to be obeyed, not only for fear but for conscience. For whoever breaketh them breaketh God's commandments. So again, I want to add another important context here. The context is there were, quote, Christian rulers. Okay. Now, was that the case in Daniel? No, it wasn't the case in Daniel. So, so there is a different context here that, that these ideas are being developed here. Let's get into the historical context a little bit more. In 1527, the Anabaptists, uh, they come about and they, they have more of a pacifist view, separation from Babylon. Their answer to the question is, well, we don't have anything to do with the state, okay? The extreme view in that sense. Uh, but also around the 1530s, 1540s, there was a pretty, up to 1560, it looked like there was very little hope for Christianity, okay? There was a complete defeat of the Lutheran princes, the Catholic ruler of the Roman Empire came in and said, no, we're going, we, don't, we're not, we, don't, we can, we can deal with these Lutherans in, in a way. They basically defeated them militarily. Uh, Lutheranism was banned, okay, in Germany. So, so it was a complete victory, okay? It looks like Satan has won, okay? In England, Mary uh, comes to power in 1554, and she executes and banishes the Puritans. They flee to the continent. Okay, and, 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 and there they get, they actually was a great thing because they got associated with Calvin and they developed their theology and their practical things and it led to even greater reformation. But nonetheless, in 1554, it looked pretty bleak. In 1543, before this, I mean, it's not all bleak. There's their positive and negative. The Scottish Parliament allowed printing the Bible. I should have put that up with uh, 
the point on, on the English Reformation. That with the English 1530s to the early 1540s, a lot of positive things were happening. A lot of, in England and Great Britain, Scotland, there was a lot of positive development in the Christian nation uh, from that perspective. Uh, in, in France, uh, the, 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 the ultimately, uh, under, under, uh, uh, under the, uh, the, the guises and uh, the Henry II the, the of, of France uh, in, the, in the 1500s, uh, up to that period of time, there was great persecution of the Huguenot, Huguenot, Huguenot depending upon whether you use the American or French pronunciation, uh, you know, beyond measure in 1572. In 1572, uh, there was a complete, there was a, there was a St. Bartholomew massacre where the, where the, where the, the guys that said, we, we want all the Protestants to come into the, we want to honor you, okay, to come into the city of Paris. And uh, as a result of that, they came in there and they were executed, killed. And, and so they were sort of wiped. So you have this, it looked like if you were living, I'll, I'll come back to 1572 later, but up to 1559, if you lived in 1559, it looked pretty bleak. Scotland. England was beginning to waver in many ways. Uh, you had Mary, Queen of Scots that had been in power there. There was a struggle that was becoming present. You have, in, in France, uh, you have this uh, very difficult situation there. You know, so you have this, um, you, you have this, looks like in Germany, the, the, the Lutherans are defeated. I mean, it looks like the end of the world, very much like today. It looks like, well, who would, who would give us a plug nickel chance of having any victory? In the 1530, however, these things happened slowly over time. In 1530, we begin to see Luther and Melanchthon arguing that a ruler who becomes tyrannical must be resisted. So again, Luther and Melanchthon both sort of sort of when when they began to when when things weren't going all their way, okay, they began to allow more of what I'll call these natural law arguments. This idea of a tyrannical rule, a tyrannical ruler could not. Uh, uh, well, let me ask you this. Was Nero a tyrannical ruler? Okay. He was, you know, he was in, whether Paul was <laughs> writing that in the time of Nero, we could debate. But, but nonetheless, uh, there were tyrannical rulers there. And Roman, Romans doesn't say, oh, unless he's tyrannical. So the question is, well, okay, how do we bring that in? I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. I'm just trying to say here. That that idea wasn't native in the original Reformation. That idea became, as a result, of what was happening, uh, of these changes that were taking place, of these struggles. Beza, who was Calvinist, 1560, however, if you look over on the left-hand side, you see all these confessions. Around 1560, uh, in 1559, there was a Gallic confession, but it was it was a very much defeated church. I mean, you know, there was there was a victory, a temporary uh, state of truce there that where that came about, but. Nonetheless, uh, and, and they suffered greatly for that confession, but, but during around 1560, most of the nations of Europe ended up with Protestant confessions. There was something magical that happened. John Knox describes it as men reigned from heaven. God opened up the floodgates of his grace in such a way that from 1559 to 1560, or, or within a, a decade, so to speak, uh, there was a great reformation that had taken place and there was great progress made. So just like when uh, Constantine brought Christianity to the Roman Empire, there was a change in what was happening. Uh, the Marian exiles. And, and so, so but, let me go back to Beza. Beza allows that a king who rules by force or fraud against the law is not a true king. So this is sort of this constitution. If the king isn't, it says, what is a true, back to this question, what is a true king? 
If a king rules by force or fraud, he's not a true king. But for individuals, he insists, there's no remedy against a tyrant except a penitence and patience joined with prayer. Any other action is bound to incur God's wrath. Okay. So, basically, recognize there's such a thing as a tyrant. Who can? I mean, okay. But he doesn't say, and he would allow perhaps uh, uh, if you're a magistrate's overthrowing him. But nonetheless, as far as the individual's concerned, he was insistent on, on very much like this view right here. Except he's sort of sort of opening up this. It's sort of like this idea was maybe what I call a little naive, and it began to get more nuanced, and and this thing began to get developed. The Marian exiles. What I mean by the Marian exiles, when Mary came to power in England, she started killing people. Okay, if you weren't killed, you probably fled. All right, Panet, uh, Panet, I guess an English pronunciation, and Goodwin uh, were writers of several treatises uh, as they left England. And they would allow more of this natural law arguments coming in here of self-defense, limiting obedience to the magistrate who rules for God's glory and cause. Okay, do not break oaths and 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 are not tyrants who it's your duty to resist. And not only that, they're beginning to get into it. It's not just your duty to submit; it's your duty to resist. Okay. Goodwin argues not to obey laws contrary to God's will, starts using natural law and self-defense and constitutional arguments to resist. So, so what you're having here is you're beginning to say, well, you know, maybe there are some conditions where you can rebel. Maybe there are some things that you can't do. So, so they begin to get to that issue. Okay. I'm running out of time. I'm going to have to pick this up next week, okay? But the point I'm trying to get to you is that, that this is a highly nuanced issue, very much in the context of where things were coming here. And when you say Calvin says this or Bezos says this or whatever, you need to understand that their thought evolved over time. That at one time it was very, it was what I would call simplistic, but it was very much, but when you get down to it, I'm arguing against simplistic, but, but I'm still here. I'm still here. Okay. What did Paul say? How do we get around that? When, who gave you the right? to decide when a magistrate's a tyrant? Who gave you the right as an individual? And maybe the lesser magistrates can use that rule, but can you use that rule to not submit? That's the question I'm trying to get to. I'll pick that up next week if that's okay, to extend this one week here and, and, and try to finish it up. But I'm not sure I can answer, but, but the question is, where do we fall out? You can see in summary that there are lots of these things in modern thought that come from both the Via Moderna and Via Matica. Both have influenced modern thought. There's a lot that's influenced Christian thought. But this guy wrote during the time of the greatest persecution in France possible. Yet he still maintained Calvin's view. But let me, let me give, give you one nuanced distinction. When, when he would, because at a previous time he, he, he told the French what they wanted to hear, and, and you know, very much along, it was a case where should you disobey an ungodly magistrate, you know, in that sense, and in which case it is, but, but ultimately, it's back to when should the church obey? It's back to the question, not individual, but when should, what does the church do about things? The church in France was so defeated, so beat up, that the French king and ultimately said, hey, you guys can continue to worship. You know, we're okay with that. Just don't use your churches. And by the way, give us your keys to your churches. Mm. Okay? But you can still worship. Mm. And what did Beret say? Did he say, rise up in rebellion? Did he say, oh, that's an unlawful command. We don't need to obey it. What he said was, well, no, there's a distinction here. That, that command doesn't go after 
the right of the church to spiritually maintain its fundamental principles of worship, etc. It goes after the external. And so he's very consistent in his thinking here. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to say he's, he's always right in all his answers, but I'm trying to say that we need to be careful being born in this world of freedom and our, 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 our whole thought process here. We need to understand the history of thought here, of how we got here. And I'm not sure I'd fully do either, so apologize for my errors. But, but, but when you really get down to it, even, even though the idea has changed, this guy still was very insistent on following the biblical things laid down by Paul. Okay. And that's really where I'm, I'm kind of advising you to sort of use as your center of gravity. I'm not saying there's not some time when you rebel. Look at the American Revolution. Look at the Great Revolution. Uh, uh, look at the Glorious Revolution in, in England in 1688. There were rebellions. There may be a time for rebellion. There may be a but for civil magistrates, but not for individuals. So that's the question. We'll pick that up next week. Let's go to Lord and Bird. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, I thank you for your glory. I thank you for your church. I thank you for how you work through history and bring about your purpose. Lord, forgive us for being sinners. Uh, Lord, you know us well. Lord, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your guidance. Help us to navigate through this issue and find sanity. Lord, because I'm afraid we soon will be in the sedition of France and, and Scotland and other places where these great persecutions take place. Lord, give us the wisdom to know how to respond and what are the rules we need to follow. We lift that up in Jesus' name. Amen.